0: It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro.
1: Well, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro here in the front row, once again, getting set for episode number four. Behind the scenes, it's creator, producer, director, J.R. Quitman as well. Well, we hope you've been enjoying our podcast so far. Three episodes in. First one, the New York Post sports writer, Mike Picaro, Again, no relation to me. Our Major League Baseball sports agent, Joe Rosen, was episode two. Episode three, Buzz Peterson, former head coach on the college level for basketball, now an assistant GM for the Charlotte Hornets. So we appreciate all them joining us. Today, the theme is fun. Episode four will be fun because it is the original Philly fanatic, Dave Raymond joining us. That's right. If you've ever been to a Phillies game or even if you just watch baseball, you know about the Philly Fanatic and what he does and the excitement and the entertainment that he creates when he's around. And we're going to hear his origin story from the very first guy that suited up as the Philly Fanatic, a great one here. And you want to stick around to the very end as we let you know what the Philly Fanatic is. So, again, you've got to stick around for that. But episode number four for you today it is the original Philly fanatic, Dave Raymond. Well, Dave, once again, uh, it's a thrill to have you on, and we appreciate your time. Uh, again, you see kind of who you represent in the background, the, the Philly fanatic. You're the the original Philly fanatic, and and again, thanks so much for taking some time out of your, your busy schedule to spend some time with us here today.
0: Uh, it's uh, You would expect me to say, hey, it's great to be here, Mike. That's what everybody, every speaker, every presenter says, but um, I really do enjoy this, um, and, and I'm looking forward to talking to folks outside of uh, my environment, so, uh, so I'm looking forward to having a good time with you today.
1: And, and again, we want to learn your, your background, and for you, I guess it started at, at Newark, Delaware. Uh, you grew up there because your dad was a pretty big deal as a football coach at Delaware, uh, Maine before that as well, Tubby Raymond, a, a Hall of Fame coach, unfortunately no longer with us, but you know, 300 wins. Three national championships. What was it like growing up in Delaware and, and having, you know, in that area certainly a, a such a famous father as 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 that guy uh, in your life?
0: Well, it was incredible on a, on a many different fronts, and I can tell you from the earliest age, everything was framed uh, through the lens of of Delaware football. There's this wonderful picture that I that I really cherish of my family um, when I was only I was probably nine years old. Um, and uh, my dad had just been um, uh, anointed the title of head football coach. Um, he'd been there since 56, the year I was born. Um, but he was head football coach. And his picture of my family, black and white picture of my sister, Debbie, my brother, Chris, uh, my mom and my dad on our front lawn at 36 Ferncliff Road in Newark, Delaware. And it was on the front page of the news journal, uh, the, the paper that still exists today. And announcing his um, elevation to head football coach, and from that point on, my my whole dream, I I just wanted to go play football for him. Now, understand, I was uh, probably at the time five foot six and weighed 120 pounds. <laughs> so, and I was slow. So, so you know, um, the wonderful dreams of kids that I didn't even think of that, and and that was my whole existence was in my. My whole main goal in life was just to get to Delaware and play football for the Blue Hens. That was it.
1: And you did have that opportunity to to play for him. What's it like? Because you always hear about the, the coach being the <laughs> father and the, the dynamic of father and player, coach and player. What was it like for, for you?
0: But you asked that question. I just got chills again because it reminds me of the, the amazing lessons i received from my parents but so my dad obviously was my father but he was also my coach and many times i've talked to uh, university of delaware crowds and constituents and players and and i've told them this story my dad had a unique ability to understand somebody and to say just the right thing at the right time to get the best out of them not just on the field but for the rest of their lives so you know, all I wanted to do my whole life was to go play football for Delaware. I was a pretty good high school football player. Uh, my senior year at Newark High School, I was the starting wide receiver, and I was also the punter and the place kicker. Uh, I made the all-star uh, game in high school uh, sports in, in football in Delaware, and I got my chance to go in and play for him. My sophomore year, it was supposed to be a redshirt year. There was a great punter in front of me, Rich Fugazi. I also appreciate that name. Rich and I have still remained in touch to, uh, today. But on this particular game, we were playing Wittenberg. It was a hot September afternoon, and he went out because of heat exhaustion. At halftime, uh, our offensive coordinator, Ted Kemsky looked at me and said, okay, David, you're our punter for the second half. You would think at that moment it would just be a joyful moment. (laughs) I had trouble putting one foot in front of the other, walking out of the locker room to go out there on halftime because all this time waiting to hear my name be announced and to be able to go out and do something – and play for my dad, yet I was paralyzed with fear. We go out on offense, third down, we don't make it. I had gathered the punt team next to Kemski, who was the offensive quarter. My dad was just to Kempsky's right within just a few feet of me. When we didn't make it on third down, he would normally turn, look at the kicker, which was would be Rich Fugazi, and say, kick it. He turned around and looked at me and then stopped and looked at Coach Kempsky and said, is that all we've got? <laughs> is that with god and immediately i was like you are good And i ran out there and i i don't even remember i you know caught the ball which he he coached me very clearly that your first job as a punter is to catch the ball nothing else other than that cuz nothing good will happen unless you catch it I caught the ball kicked it a uh, great punt people are cheering cuz little tubby's son is is, is out there and uh, i went running off the field and he looked at me and went And I went, you son of a gun. He did that on purpose because he knew I was petrified. He knew the way I was. He knew I was in. There was no way he didn't know that Fugazi was out and I was in. And he said that um, in his I, I had the blessing to speak at his memorial service. We had about 1500 people there in the convocation center at the Bob Carpenter Center. And that day, and and continuing today, I always get his former football players to come up to me and say, "Hey, I want to tell you what your dad said, did, or demonstrated for me that I will remember for the rest of my life." And that's truly what we. I lent my father to Delaware football, and he changed lives. Um, and and I'm meeting those people every day, and and we have a great fraternity of folks uh, that that played football for my dad, and it was. You know special and and I learned a lot, uh, from him as, as a father, but as a coach and and teaching me how to throw my first curveball, which made me a pretty good left handed pitcher throughout high school. Um, and uh, and it was all because of him, and and of course, the the sacrifice of my mom, um, and and all the wonderful things she did for our family. So, uh, you know, go go to the College Football Hall of Fame and check out his display. You can you can access it online, uh, it's in Atlanta. Um, and it's just an amazing place, and um, I, I think you'll gain some respect for what he did. Um, he was best friends with Bear Bryant, Ara Parsegian, um, Joe Paterno. Uh, you know, all of these great football coaches appreciated him and his offensive philosophy. And um, and and it was a it's a thrill to uh, think of him each and every day.
1: And he was so influential. I was reading that politicians would kind of get him on their side because they knew that was a way to maybe get elected. Is that true? Is that the case?
0: Well, yeah. And Delaware is a state where look, you don't get anything done in Delaware unless you're from Delaware. It, it has been known for years. You know, We're a small state. Um, and, and really, if you want something done, you either need to be connected to, know, or you are uh, somebody from Delaware. So uh, Jack Markel, who, who grew up in our neighborhood, right uh, on Dilwyn Road next to Ferncliff, jack grew up to become the uh, governor of state of delaware and he was um you know he was a a a liberal democrat and my dad was a very staunch conservative republican yet my dad campaigned for him and when people asked him and he said look in delaware it doesn't matter you know jack is is part of our family and and our state couldn't do better than to have him as governor uh john carney's now the governor i played in that all-star game with john he was our quarterback i mean and, and Joe Biden has been a, a close family friend. He played as a freshman for my dad, and he loves to tell the story that he, he walked out there and played a few practices and said, yeah, you know, I don't think this is for me. <laughs> and, and he said, yet, as as I grow in my political career, Tubby, Started by calling me a scrub, but uh, when he was vice president, my dad said he was a little all-American. To tell. So, so now uh, my dad's not with us, but I'm sure Joe's wondering uh, how my dad would introduce him today beyond being the president.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's great. Far-reaching uh, your dad's influence, and and I guess that that continues with with you. And again, with the Phillies, he kind of helped you get that internship, I guess, with the Phillies. And this is prior to you know the the Philly fanatic even existing.
0: Yeah. He, look, you know, you can imagine that my vision was, was to play football. And then of course I'm like, well, what am I to do with my life? Well, I'm going to be a football coach. And, uh, he, he, he said, listen, I'll help you. You you know, you don't have to worry. I'll do whatever you can, but you've got to have a realistic focus. You are not going to be at the same institution for 50 years. Um, it it just doesn't happen in today's world. You could make a lot of money, but you're going to move your family all over the place. So you got a few years before you graduate. Why don't I help you get a job with the Phillies? You'll never know who you meet or what might happen. And uh, so 76 and 77, the All-Star Game was in Philadelphia in 1976. It was the bicentennial year. And I was sold. I'm like, you know, there wasn't a sports marketing degree back then. Uh, I just uh, saw that, wow, I could actually have a career. I interned with Eddie Wade, who became a, a general manager. Um, I was best friends with Dave Buck, who's the president of the Phillies now, Um, and he was an intern after I was there for a few years. So I went there, uh, fell into this work. Um, It was supposed to be a two-year internship, but after, in 1978, when I thought, well, I'll graduate from Delaware, I'm still Tubby's son, friend of the owner, the carpenters, uh, Ruley Carpenter at the time, you know, maybe they'll have a job for me when I graduate. Instead, they called me early spring of 78 and said, do you want your job back? Which, of course, I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> what do you want me to do? And they said, go to New York and get fitted for the costume. <laughs> I was very confused on the phone back in the old days, the corded phone. I'm, look, I'm in my fraternity. I'm looking around the, the corner like somebody's pranking me. And I said, what? And, and uh, it was Frank Sullivan, who was the director of promotions at the time. He said, David, just go to New York and get fitted for the costume. So, my dad said, you know, do whatever they ask you to do. Uh, don't question it, prove your value. And I, I went up and walked into Geppetto's puppet studio on the West 39th Street and the garment district in New York. And the woman that I first met uh, was one of Jim Henson's original designers. They measured me, you know, it took 20 minutes. They measured every which way, whatever you can imagine. They measured. And then they said, get out of here. And they handed me a piece of paper, which had a graphic drawing of what was to become the fanatic. And I went, oh, my gosh, i got going to get paid to be a Muppet. Um, with no thought about, no, I hadn't have any direction. Nobody told me what I was going to do. I, I knew, um, I actually was in the stands when they threw snowballs at Santa Claus. And I, I didn't throw a snowball at Santa Claus, but he really didn't have a very good day that day. So, <laughs> so there was some understanding like, well, maybe he deserved it. Uh, so I really understood the heartbeat of the Phillies fans. And, um, you know, my, my boss, Bill Giles, said, look, when he saw that I was frightened, first day I put it on was the first day I was going to wear it because the costumes uh, construction was delayed. So, you know, we thought I was going to have some time to get into it and and, and practice a little bit. I, I was just in it the, in the morning. And then um, that night I went out and I went to Mr. Giles' office about two hours before I was supposed to go out and said, what the heck do you want me to do, Mr. Giles? And uh, he saw this fear in my face. He said, David, look, this is easy. You just need to go out and have fun. If you're not having fun, the fanatic will not relate to our fans. It won't, he won't be funny. You need to connect with just going out and enjoying yourself. And I'm like, I went, oh my gosh, I'm getting paid and my job is to have fun. And I ran out of his office and this is the honest to God truth. He yelled at me as I'm going out his door G rated fun, David, G rated fun. <laughs> so, okay, so I did have a box that that Mr. Giles wanted me to uh, perform inside of. and I fortunately, over sixteen years, I, I I pushed that limit a little bit, but never completely fell out of that box. and um and I really think the directive of of making sure he uh, he explained to me that I needed to enjoy this. If I wasn't enjoying it, it wasn't going to work. Um, and that's, that's, that's enlightened leadership and it was beautiful information. And, and just like when my dad talked to some of his players, I I will never forget that instruction because I believe 43 years of success with this, you know, this multi-million, maybe even a billion dollar brand extension, uh, has thrived because of that, uh, leadership.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I know Sports Illustrated says the best sports mascot out there. And I know it's a you know, the most recognizable one, whether you're a Philly fan or not, I think you, obviously, you know what the Philly fanatic is. And, and I saw that you, you said, you, you consider yourself a, a, a wise ass and and you said that that kind of suited the personality of the fanatic as well. Was that a plus to, to have that type of personality?
0: Well, I, I've got it. Well, once again, that was Bill Giles in his recollection when he was trying to, when he was telling the story of why he selected me. And that everybody else approved of it. He said, "Well, in some of the meetings, Dave's a wise ass." Now, th- look, that may possibly be because you know we we all we have to self reflect. All I remember though is being petrified, being in the Phillies front office, and being a friend of ownership. That if I screwed this up, um, I would my dad and family would be upset and 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 shamed and and ruly, and the Carpenter family would you know, want to know what they got into. So I thought I was really behaving, <laughs> but apparently though. Bill suggested at the meetings I was a wise-ass. So I'll I'll accept that. What really did help me, though, was that directive. And then without any other editing, there was no have fun and here's the five, six things you need to do. They just said go. And so I mashed up uh, slapstick humor, my love of cartoons, you know, Warner Brothers cartoons, um, Foghorn, Leghorn, Daffy Duck, and, and then the Three Stooges and Silent Comedians. I love that work. My mom was deaf. I didn't think of this right away, but my mom was deaf, so I naturally communicated non-verbally well. And and then I had the heartbeat of the Philadelphia fan. I knew that if I came upon a fan with a Mets hat, I had to do something with them that would make fun of them, but it needed to be family-friendly. So I might grab the hat and wing it out onto the field like a pinwheel. Everybody would go, oh, my gosh, yeah, you got the Mets fan. Yeah, you, you know you deserve it and then of course i would run grab the hat and bring it back to them but of course i'd spill a little popcorn on it and i'd wipe my nose with it and then i'd hand it back to them and it was and it was really undamaged so that was the i knew that instinctfully you know in my instincts in my bones i knew that that's the type of personality that i needed to create uh, in the fanatics so that i would be accepted by the fans and then a lot of the other things just happened not by design, but by happenstance and by my appreciation of baseball, understanding who these players were, understanding who the umpires were, uh, and and the individual fans, I started to realize that there were categories of men and women and kids that together and say, hey, I've got 10 things I can do to this category. So the cute little kid, uh, the baby, uh, the the tween with his hair spiked up and, and painted purple, uh, the tough, rough, macho guy, uh, the beautiful girl, the pregnant woman, uh, the couple, the unassuming couple, the 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 uh, you know the the first date. I, I had all of them categorized, and and over time, like Robin Williams, I knew ten things I could do that everyone would laugh at, and and it looked like I was doing it spontaneously. So, and the Phillies let me explore, and and as long as I didn't um, you know go against the prime directive of family friendly. It was all good, and you know I made mistakes, and 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 Bill Giles would talk to me about them, but he never said no. He just said why'd you do that, and then we'd discuss it, and then together we'd come up with a solution or or how I might get better. Um, I mean, and I was 22, 23 years old during this time, and I'm like, Bill Giles is is asking me my opinion and what I think of it, and and how we could make it better. It was. Uh, you know, um, empowering. And and again, like I said, enlightened leadership really abounded with the Phillies during that time.
1: Well, April 25th, 1978 was the very first day, I guess, the first performance as well. So you, you, I'm sure you learn a lot along the way, <laughs> but take us through that, that first day, that first time inside, maybe, ha- you know, I'm sure it was hot in there, or were you second guessing what you were doing
0: on that first day? No, I think from that moment was just a few hours before Bill said, go have fun. And so, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't smart enough to be nervous and I didn't have any ex- experience to compare it to. I, I wasn't looking, you know, it wasn't 43 years later and suddenly I have the fanatic and, and clutch from Houston and uh, the Phoenix gorilla and all these other characters that I had to compete with. It, I was really in, in an environment uh, that no one knew what to expect. They didn't even know it was coming. There, there wasn't an announcement. So I ran out in section 232, uh, which was directly across the indoor concourse from the back door of the Phillies executive office. I just went right out to this vomitory into 232. That was where all of our Phillies family and friends were and, and VIPs from the team. And I immediately had this friendly audience. So they were cheering and high-fiving and laughing. I had a little pennant on it, a little, um, Felt pennant that said Philly fanatic, so they knew that was my name, and uh, I just decided to be frenetic. So, in, as soon as I started to move quickly, I actually tripped and fell because the shoes were big and I wasn't used to them. And everybody laughed. I went, "Okay, I got, I got to fall down more." Um, and I was went down to the old picnic area, which uh, you know in today's world it would be a waste of space, but it was where. Fans could go right down close to the field, be in a have picnic tables and actually eat their food. So I was jumping from one picnic table to the other. And then I leaped up and grabbed the um, uh, the chain lick fence uh, like a David Letterman Velcro joke. And I stuck to the fence I'm like <laughs> and everybody is cheering. So I just realized I had to be frenetic. I had to be um, invading people's space. And and then uh, that's when I realized very quickly, oh, my gosh, <laughs> this is physically exhausting. <laughs> So uh, then I had to figure out a way to take a break. Well, after that first inning was over, I thought I was going to die. And I just said, I'm not walking all the way back up those steps because I had worked my way all the way down onto the field level by the little fence there of that area of the stands. I just jumped over the fence and ran to go out behind home plate. And people were went crazy that I was on the field. It was like a streaker. Oh, my God, he's on the field. And I went, wow, this is really cool. What I... When I break that fourth wall, I'm getting a good reaction. And then what happened after that was uh, my work with Eric Gregg, one of one of my favorite uh, National League umpires at the time, they had National League and American League umpire crews. And I realized, wow, if I can get the reaction from an umpire, anything, just a wave, or maybe a, 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 a Eric would shake his belly at me, uh, which was almost as big as the Fanatics. And, and, um, You know, and then then I would uh, come out pregame and realize that if I got players reactions, it would be even bigger. And it was exciting for me to try to get these Major League Baseball stars, people who I looked at as being, you know, my own, you know, young boy heroes. And I got to be working with them and they would laugh and joke around with me. And I just went, oh, my gosh, it was the most fun to do that. And then it was great for the performance. So I got to really focus on the things that were joyful to me because I, because the fans recognized how joyful it was for them. And and that that's how we and I build a personality based on that. Um, you know how what would make me happy? What would make me if I was in the stands with my kids? What would make them happy? How can I uh, distract them from a game when it wasn't going very well? Uh, distract them from a game that even during those times, baseball was slow. It's it's gotten to the point where it's painful these days. Uh, but um, you know, and 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 the Fanatic's personality was really created in my brain, so I would be comfortable and I would be happy, and I was having fun, and and that's really why we've got this wonderful personality. That's, um, you know, the Phillies allowed it to happen um, virally and and authentically, and and that's why the fanatic has been around for 43 years and will be here for 80, 90, hundreds of years. Hopefully, if baseball continues to be our pastime, uh, the fanatic will be there.
1: Yeah, I'm sure he'll outlive us all for for sure. You see some of the the video highlights here that the ATV has always been kind of a, a signature for him as well. When did that come into play and whose idea was that?
0: Oh, that's funny. Well, it came out of my understanding that if I had some ability to get from place to place faster without wasting energy, wouldn't that be great? But it's, it's, again, it goes back to my dad. He had a good friend, Saul Savage, who was a businessman who owned a couple of restaurants in the Newark, Delaware area, in the Wilmington, Newark, Delaware area. And he uh, bought and opened up a motorcycle, a Honda motorcycle dealership right on Elkton Road going between Newark and Elkton. And they asked me to come make an appearance as the Fanatic. And the Fanatic at this point was you know, famous. And whenever he would show up, hundreds or thousands of people would show up. And three or four days before um, that appearance, a couple of the guys who, who put the motorcycles and the equipment together to get them on the showroom for, floor to sell them said, hey, can you come out? It was someplace out in the farmland out in Elkton. Can you come out? We want to show you this new three-wheeler. It's a, it looks like a little buggy. It's from Honda. It's brand new. I want to show you how to ride it so maybe when you're in costume, you can ride it. So I went and practiced. I thought, oh my God, this is so much fun. And then I zipped back and forth in Elton Road. The police officers were upset, but uh, I was stopping traffic and and probably being a little bit unsafe. Uh, but I had a blast, and I went right to Bill Giles. That evening, there was a home game. I said, Mr. Giles, we've got to get one of these. I, I uh, You know, the days you couldn't take uh, pictures right away. And I said, I've got some pictures I'll show you. And within a week, he had called Honda, uh, he bought it, um, and then we it turned into a sponsorship. And that three-wheeler became a little bit unsafe. Kids were hurting themselves on it. It wasn't the safest vehicle. It flipped over easy. And then we switched to a four-wheeler. And even to this day, we have a relationship with uh, Honda that uh, that provides that vehicle for the Fanatic even today.
1: Did you ever hurt yourself on one of those or one of the, you know, we saw you <laughs> rappelling down. We saw you, you
0: know, you know jumping out of airplanes, any, any injuries that you had to deal with? I, I got bumps and bruises, you know, my, my best friend and, and the current best friend of the Philly fanatic Tom Burgoyne, he got a few, you know, including a, a broken orbit bone. I, I can't believe I did. I get hit in the face with a, with a, a rake, a, a, a grounds crew rake. I twisted an ankle and knee. I, I by a few tweens, I got hit in the spot where all males don't like to get hit. So a a couple of those things, but I got to tell you the, my funniest story about the three-wheeler when I still had it, Sparky Lyle was in our bullpen and and he was, he was a Jay Johnstone type of guy. He just was a funny guy. So the bullpen was where I would come out in the beginning of the game, pregame, I'd come riding out on the, on the three-wheeler. Well, on this particular night, I came riding out going probably maybe 15, 20 miles an hour. And my foot the Fanatic's foot slipped off the peg. And what happens, this was another bad thing with those those vehicles. The back tire, they were all big, soft, balloon-like tires. It could actually kind of eat up your foot. So it captured my foot. And then it just pulled me right off the bike, threw me to the ground, and the bike rolled over. And I just laid there. I wasn't hurt, but I laid there. Sparky Lyle came running out from, uh, you know, from uh, the bullpen thinking, oh my gosh, I got to I got to rescue Dave. I got to take care of Dave because I was friendly with Sparky, and he came and said, "Dave, are you okay? Are you okay?" And I said, "Get out of here! You're ruining my act." <laughs> and, he, and he went, "Oh, oh, okay," and he he sulked off like a little kid that had just been reprimanded by his first grade teacher. And then then I jumped up, you know, and 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 did this, and the fans were because everyone thought that I was really hurt. Um, so uh, I'll never forget that moment uh, and and how invested the players were in, in the routines. And then of course, in this case, in, in my safety um, and, and, and Sparky Lyle, he, you know, if you asked him, he would remember that like it was yesterday. Cause uh, you know, th- that's something we've rec- recounted over the years.
1: And your ability to improvise. That's awesome. Hey, that, Hey, that's part of the act, right? You know, that wasn't an accident. That was part of the act. And, and we saw some highlights there of you and Tommy Lasorda. And I know, <laughs> you know, I always thought it was playful, but I guess, you know, reading up on you, there, he wasn't always playful with you in the Philly fanatic. He was upset at some point. So what was that relationship like with you two? Because, you know, even at, at that time, that was kind of a big rivalry. You know, the Dodgers and the Phillies, even though they were East Coast, West Coast, his roots in Pennsylvania, I think, kind of made that, you know, a bigger rivalry than, than it certainly is now.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that people who are Philadelphia and and we're insecure, right? So when one of our Philadelphians uh, runs off to L.A. and, starts to hobnob with all the celebrities in Los Angeles, we take offense to it. So that you're right. That really was like a little bit of gasoline on the fire. But Tommy was very kind to me. We had a good relationship all the way from 1979 when I first met him in Japan out of costume uh, to the final days of his life. I, I Every time I'd run into him personally, he'd go, hey, how's your dad doing? Because you know he connected with my dad's background being a, a coach and he being a manager. And we, we would chat. He'd be very nice. And, and then if there was a group of people around him, he would point at me to the, to his entourage and say, see that kid, he's lucky he's alive. And then he would tell the story <laughs> just the way I've told it for many years. Um, when I was in Japan, I made the mistake. I was a young kid was there for seven weeks. Um, baseball had anointed the fanatic as their mascot to represent major league baseball over in Japan. And the Japanese fans were amazing. And they revered american baseball and i wanted to sign all the baseballs from that tour uh, as the fanatic so everyone would remember the fanatic was there well my mistake was i was signing it in the sweet spot because when i was getting in to the clubhouse it was before all the players got there and i grabbed the balls and signed them well the manager's supposed to sign in that sweet spot (laughs) so that created a good prank where tommy hid in his office early got there before i did and actually hid in his office with chuck tanner who was his bench coach that day Uh, And he came busting out of his office with Chuck Tanner, screaming at me, all kinds of expletive deletes, uh, deleted saying, you can't sign there. That's where the manager signs. And I I was like, oh my God, Tommy Lasura is going to kill me. Um, And then they all start laughing. And from that point forward in that tour, uh, Tommy made me sign every single baseball that came into the clubhouse, which took me hours and hours of additional time. And that's how our relationship started. It was this push and pull and every time the fanatic came around, he would scream at me. He'd call me Dave and yell obscenities because his players would always love seeing him get, ir- irate. It was a part of the way I believed he motivated his players. He was trying to entertain them, and anybody that knew Tommy knew he could go from zero to one hundred with his temper. And that day, he was uh, in a he was in a weight loss competition with Oral Hershiser, who and it was sponsored by Slim Fast. Uh, their team wasn't playing very well and he didn't think I got his jersey because he didn't take any additional jerseys with him of his jerseys on the road when he came to Philadelphia because he knew somebody and it was Steve Sachs was getting me his additional la jersey so I could dress the dummy. Well, I knew this was happening because Steve Sachs told me so I bought a jersey and put it on the dummy. So uh, the you know the the conflation of all of those issues, uh, as as Johnny Marks, a Philadelphia broadcaster, said, oh, he was okay with it until he wasn't, which is the perfect way to describe it. He was okay with all of it until this particular day, and he lost his you-know-what, and it's forever memorialized in that video on YouTube. I, I, I let everybody know, go uh, write in Fnatic versus Lasorda and watch that YouTube video, uh, hundreds of thousands pushing millions of views, and listen to the Dodger <laughs> broadcasters because they captured that audio and they can't, they have trouble, have trouble talking about it. And then the last thing that they say that always makes me laugh is says Tommy's never moved faster, like faster than that in his entire career <laughs> chasing me. And it it just is, it's, it's comedy gold. It really is.
1: Yeah, he, he knew what he was doing. He he was onto something there, and and, and then I guess later on you, you went to a Dodgers game. Is that correct that that you yeah, were? I actually
0: yeah, I actually did that before. Okay. Um, and, and it is part of my my uh, keynote um, discussion, and and it's the value of fun, and, and in this case, it's it's the uh, you know it's the battle cry of the fun killer because I had a run in with a band director out in Los Angeles. They had asked me to come out because they knew the pregame antics I was doing. Was really valuable, so they told the Phillies, "Bring him out to LA." And this is this was probably just after '79 when I met Tommy and we were enjoying ourselves. And I it's probably '81 or '82, and I went out there just thinking, "Oh my gosh, I I get to go to Los Angeles and I'm gonna work in front of these these fans." And and I came out, the, the players were excited, they threw me out there, said, "Go get them," and and I got the crap boot out of me. And they're just been I I hadn't expected that. And when I saw the band file out, fill out the center field, I'm like thinking, oh, I've done this in Philadelphia. This will work. And I and I won the whole crowd over by running around spontaneously interacting with the band. But the band director would come out and was screaming at me and chasing me. And um, and finally, they had two P- LA police officers drag the band director off the field. Um, and I, had, I met him afterwards because I thought, oh, this is a shame. I was doing what I was doing just to get the crowd back. And they went from horrific booing to this standing ovation because, you know, they, they saw the band get interrupted by a Muppet show and the band never stopped. So it was perfect, right? And I went and I'm thinking I had this wonderful uh, turnaround with the Los Angeles crowd. They, they loved that part of the fanatic. And then I went to the band director to apologize. He said, hey, don't apologize, Dave. My band got a standing ovation. And th- the message there, as I continued to saw, was that there are going to be people that aren't going to like the thought of you coming in like a bull in a china shop. But what you need to do is tell them ahead of time that you're approved and you're good at this. This is serious fun. This isn't just me going off half cocked. Like the band director said, I thought you were a Phillies fan that came to the game with a, with the fanatic costume and ran onto the field. So that was, I had a very fond memories of the Dodgers fans and I will always remember, you know, how well they treated me and, you know, gave me what I deserved, right. What we would do in Philadelphia. And then uh, we're willing to be won over by, uh, by distracting fun. So, um, so, and I think that Tommy was there that day for sure and saw how great this was. And that's why he always played around with me because he saw it as being great entertainment. Um, He just got pissed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Did you see early on, I mean, again, great stories here and the the crowd loves, did you see early on that this was going to be, you know, sustainable and this was going to become as big, of a character and is, you know, like you said, a, you know, an entity that it has become right now? Could you tell early on how big it was going to be?
0: Well, I, I knew my first feeling was I'm going to do this for a few weeks. It's going to crash and burn because how is this going to work in front of our tough fans? Um, but I was emboldened by Bill Giles' belief in it. And he believed that whether it, he won it or lost it didn't matter. Sometimes his failures were funnier than the things that work. But very quickly, I realized, wow, uh, and I didn't know this was happening. This is from deconstruction and the development of my keynote in front of my audience, audiences all about this is I wasn't aware it was going on, but it was right there under the fanatics big long nose. And that was that as soon as I came out, I, the fanatics personality was a unifier, uh, specifically in Philadelphia, uh, but became a unifier in, uh, all around the world. But you show up and you distract people with some fun. They wanna interact with you, they wanna hug you, they wanna tell you they love you, they wanna take photographs of you and then they're gonna cherish those photographs. I know that because people I meet every day will show me some photograph that they've had digitally inserted into their phone to say, look at this, this is when you started, this is me when I was eight. Um, And so he was connecting and mascots do this, good mascots, it's not easy to create a great character brand But when you do that, they connect emotionally right away. And that's no matter what's happening in your family. They, you know, I can tell you hundreds and hundreds of stories of me walking into hospital rooms or into homes, you know, where, where families are dealing with tragedy that you couldn't imagine. And even during those, you know, those times of brutality that's being delivered to them, they go, thank you. You, we, we got just a second or two of distraction. And As I started to see that happen in the early days, I wasn't, I didn't know it was happening. I just felt good. I was physically exhausted, but oh my gosh, I get, everybody's telling me they love me. That's a great thing to do, to be kind to people, uh, because it's, it's impossible for it not to be good for your mental uh, and psychology. You think in today's world, if one of the things you could do to overcome all the crap we're going through is decide that you're going to go be kind all day long. Anybody you meet, you're going to wave, say hi. First one to smile. Gabby Reese says it. I'm the first one to smile, I try to be the first one to laugh. Um Laird Hamilton's wife and the, and the great volleyball player. Uh and and I and that's what I love is hearing other people say the same thing. And if we're doing that daily, um you realize that the benefit you're getting back is is better than what you're delivering and they're both really good. And and these are simple solutions to complex problems. That that's what I believe and I've and I've seen it. There is always a simple solution to a very complex problem. There's two reasons why we don't engage them. One, because it's simple. And we don't think it's valuable because it's simple. And two, because of that devaluing, we don't engage in it on a daily basis. Even though we see it happening right in front of our noses, we don't engage it. So I'm always telling my audiences that you need to take fun out of the commodity of what you do on a vacation or a break and realize that if you put the word serious in front of it, you're engaging a simple thing that can solve complex problems and you just need to believe it and then engage in it daily and you'll see the benefit for you and everybody around you. And that's, that's truly what mascots continue to do, do today. That's what the fanatic does every time he walks out is he's engaging in kindness, delivering joy, and then the person that is inhabiting that costume is receiving a huge benefit um and i believe i'm i'm a more emotionally healthy today because that fanatic's personality still lives in my brain
1: yeah and i know you you said it benefited you because you went through a rough time in your life you were going through a divorce i guess your mom had passed away recently and you leaned on the fanatic to kind of help you get through that time is that true
0: yeah and and mike i appreciate you bringing it up because i'd mentioned before that you know i i talk about my dad in my speech and say he was my hero, you know, but my mom, we stood on her giant shoulders and she went deaf at the age of 29. And 30 years later, she contracted a glioblastoma brain tumor, which took her life in eight months. And I realized that the whole fanatics personality, the skill set that I didn't value was driven by my need to get in front of my mom and communicate non-verbally so she could understand me. Um, so, you know, I went through this difficult time, my mom passing and and, you know, the, I always talk about grief and, and loss uh, as, as determined by Hollywood is, is really uh, a, a misconception. And I'm saying traditional Hollywood. There, there are a lot of great storytellers that show the real experience of what death and loss can be. But the Hollywood version is everybody comes together. They have a kumbaya. They, they remember the passing and all their relationships are stronger because of it. And that's just not what happens. Uh, when I went home with my my wife and my young son Kyle uh, after my mom died, I thought as a family we were going to connect. And and what it did was expose all of the the gaps and the problems in our in my wife's and my relationship. And it fell apart quickly. Um, and 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 this is not uh, this is not a shot at at uh, my marriage training program partner, uh, Christine left and and she needed to leave. And it probably was the best thing for both of us. But there's all kinds of collateral damage. And I'm thinking like, how can I be a clown in the middle of all this? Yet when I was forced to do some appearances before I could clean my schedule up, the Phillies were going to help me do that. um, I started recognizing that when I inhabited that costume, my personality floated away like an out-of-body experience and the fanatic took charge and I was refreshed. I'd get out of the costume and I'd feel better. Now, that only lasted for an hour or so. But every single day with a little small drip, 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 those turned into weeks, months. And then within a couple of years, I went, wow, I feel great. And I am I was saved by the fanatic. Because in the early going, as people who go through this, they'll tell you, you slip into a hopelessness stage. And And Mike, I'll use your name for a second if you were in a hopeless stage and you decided on a bad decision, but that bad decision in your mind relieved you, right? And people that you left behind would say, I can't believe that Mike did that. Because anybody, no matter how healthy we are emotionally, if we get into hopelessness and we don't have a way out, that becomes one of the options. And Uh, and our whole goal in psychology used to be to make the miserable less miserable because they wanted to get them out of that hopelessness stage and then manage their their mental condition. Uh, The fanatic pulled me out of that hopelessness stage. And then I was able to look and say, thank goodness I didn't act on the option that was presented to me that I was ready to engage. So now I no longer say I can't believe, or if I hear people say that, said, nope, all you have to do is be there to relate and understand that, that we all could potentially, during our lives, be there. And what we need is the understanding, the ability to engage these simple solutions to get us out of there. And for me, the fanatics personality was that daily solution. I went to the Phillies and said, I'll do twice as many appearances. I'll, I'll give me double headers. I don't care. I'm going to do this because I realized this was the only way that I could possibly survive and it worked and now that's what I talk about because you don't have to have a personality to disappear into. you just need to value these simple uh, solutions and then um, and then once you value them you will invest in them daily and it's hard work and you do it prior to brutality of life because you want to be prepared. you want to have your armor on, you want to have your your sword in the sheath. you want to have your arrow in your quiver that you're going to battle the brutality of life. Um, and it and it works, and that's what I want everybody to know. You can do it on your own, um, and and it just takes some a little bit of value and simplicity and and daily exercise.
1: I mean, you put it in that terms, and you mentioned earlier you're you're a giant muppet, but obviously, as you've gotten older, you you see the Philly fanatic in, in a different light now. It, it looks like, and and it's not just all right. You're a clown out there. You're getting something off of this personality, this persona. And certainly it's, you know, folks can benefit from, from this as you have.
0: Yeah, he's, he's silly, wacky, furry, he's slapstick humor. Um, But you know that, and, and that is part of serious fun at times. Sometimes serious fun requires you to be silly, wacky, goofy, clown nose, right? But it also is, is, uh, is, is the same type of process where it can save your life. It's the timing. It's what's going on with you. And it's not, not um, devaluing these types of exercises when you're feeling horrific. Uh, that's the counterintuitive process. But if you've learned how to value it, you go, oh, well, that makes sense. I'm, I'm doing this right now in the midst of all of this pain because I know it's what I need. So when I look at the fanatic, I look at him as silly, wacky, furry. I can't wait to see him do something in that genre because it fits. But deeply embedded into his personality is this powerful fun uh, that I've written about, that I talk about. Um, and, and frankly, when I'm talking, I just want to get one person to believe that what I'm saying can be effective for them because that they infect their family. Those families infect the businesses. Those businesses affect their community. And those communities make the world a better place. Simple solutions to complex problems.
1: What was a transition like for you when you knew your time was done actually being the fanatic, were you thinking, okay, what's next? What am I going to do? And and then, you know, when did you start thinking there's, there's things to kind of go back to that with your book, as you see there in the background and, and now your keynote speaking that still tie into, you know, your role as the original Philly fanatic?
0: Well, it's, um, it's Mitch Williams fault. <laughs> uh, you know, when he, when he, I was in, in my home uh, with my son who, um, you know, was old enough to understand. You know the nature of this situation, and you know Mitch Williams threw that pitch, and my son ha- was staying in the bedroom because um, um, my my wife, now with twenty six years, was in the house while we were dating, and she told Kyle, "You should stay in the bedroom because the Phillies have been playing well." So, and so I stayed in. The living I do the same industry.
1: thing to my son.
0: Yeah, Kyle was down the hall. Right, we can all relate that, right? So we're we're institutionalizing this, you know, uh, our insecurities and and uh, you know our the, the things that we need to keep ourselves uh, focused on positive re- results. So Mitch Williams throws the the ball and 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 the home run, and I'm thinking, gosh, my son's going to be devastated. And he called me, Dad. And I walked in his room. He goes, "Is is that it?" And I go, "Yeah." And he said, "Are we playing tomorrow?" I go, "Nope." He goes. Okay. Uh so I am going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get some sleep and I thought wow okay it it, it does, this is not why he's invested in it. It's he just wants to be with us and he wants to experience it like we do and uh, that's when I decided you know it was going to be okay. Um when I told him I wasn't when I told Kyle I wasn't going to be the fanatic he said are you still going to be my dad? <laughs> I said, yes, of course I'd be your dad. He goes okay. I mean it just you know, you you realize what's important through the yeah. eyes of your children and being a, a parent. <clears throat> so I I realized that I was I had done what I felt I could do. I I was losing interest in portraying this character, and I wanted to do bigger things. and And that's why I wanted to become an entrepreneur. My my brother helped me write um, a business plan. I got some financial support. Um, I, I had to close the the business I was in. Uh, when I started and seven years later, I, I really went out on my own. So I had partners for seven years, we built a pretty good business. And and then, uh, in essence, I took that business over and, uh, since 2000, I've been running Raymond entertainment, um, and, and Dave Raymond speaks. These are the, my two focuses, um, Raymond entertainment. I've just been engaged by a few major sports brands here in the United States and over in Europe to create character brands for them. So I'm excited. Um, and uh, I'm also uh, speaking to large conferences and events now that we're getting back to live events, but also I do it like this. I've, I've talked to 2000 people from Invacare, um, on, uh, you know, on this camera that I'm talking to you right now. So, um, it's, it's been an amazing journey. Uh, I'm excited about the future and there's a lot of great possibilities. Uh, and, um, and I've had some of the most amazing things happen to me, um, I, I had a phone conversation um, with, the, the, with Michael Eisner, the, the former head of Disney and, and Paramount Pictures, and he had read the article in, in the New York Times and he wanted me to come help one of his brands. Uh, and here's, a guy, here's the guy that ran Disney is, is calling me to talk about me helping him create a character. Uh, he was He's generous, he's kind, he's brilliant. Um, and it's all, again, because of the fanatic to, to be able to have somebody like that reach out to me um, is a is a dream um, and and look I've gone through some really nasty things like the rest of us I've lost some people who have been close to me um, and and it will continue that way because that's part of life but um, I feel like I'm fully armed right Mike I'm completely covered no longer in fur but in armor um, and this armor is is all driven by the power of fun and um, and I can't wait what's next uh, good or bad because if it's bad I know how to survive it and. Um, if it's something with my health, if if it's time for me to go, I think I'm fully prepared for that. Um, it, it's it's amazing to have this faith that things are going to be okay, um, and, and whether that's a religious faith or not, which I hold you know pretty strongly in my heart, it, it's really faith in general. Um, that, that's one of the things we need to have faith that it's going to be okay, it's going to work out, um, and that is like armor. That's that's you know uh, you know it, it can't be pierced. Uh, if you've really practiced it, and and I and I'm I'm looking forward to what life has right now, and and thrilled to be talking to you and your audience about it because I because I want them all to believe a little piece of it and go start tomorrow um, or as soon as they're done watching this to to build on their happiness.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's truly amazing. I mean, again, I'm sure your your parents were a great influence, but the guy that you call that the big green guy, uh, just the influence on your life beyond being that character. And as you said, your business now, you you. You help with mascots. I know you also helped with uh, another mascot in the Philadelphia area. You were, you were I guess, instrumental or, or part of the process of Gritty with the, the Philadelphia Flyers as well. How did that all happen? Because it was, you know, when it first came out, people weren't sure. But now, almost like the Philly Fanatic, Gritty with the Flyers is, is kind of becoming that guy in that area, I believe. And, and, you know, people have gravitated to that mascot now as well. So another success story for you.
0: Yeah, I think the interesting thing is every single thing that happened in, in Gritty's um, birthing uh, happened with the Fanatic. The, pro- the difference was the Phillies didn't really know what this was a process. So I didn't know what it was a process. But because of Bill Giles' brilliance, There is a process in his brain that got us to success. And let's be clear, the fanatic has received every single accolade. He's been on every national TV show. He's worked with all kinds of celebrities, just like Gritty did. But it took him five or six years to get there. Gritty did it in 48 hours. Uh, And that is uh, an ode on a positive level to social media and how we connect and how we broadcast today. Uh, But it was a collaboration. I was a collaborator. People uh, probably give me a little too, too much credit. Uh, in the news, I will take credit because it wouldn't have happened without me. But it absolutely wouldn't happen without the, Phil- or the the Flyers and their fearlessness in developing a character brand that was supposed to build new Flyers fans. That was the only main goal, and they were the concern was, as we all shared, that we were going to get hammered and and somewhat obliterated by the uh, tough, hard nosed fans uh, in, of the Flyers in Philadelphia. We were going to upset them. They were going to think this is selling out. They were going to think this is a, a marketing ploy to distract them from, in more recent times, the lack of success the Flyers were having on the ice. Uh, so the, the Flyers just said, doesn't matter. It's four kids when they scream and holler. The first thing they said was, when I told them this was going to happen, they said, we know it and we're looking forward to it. I thought, okay, that's new. I've never heard that before. I've, I've heard from the 76ers organization when I worked with them and it didn't work out because I heard they were going to be fearless. But as soon as they got negative reaction from designs that they showed to the public, they quit. So uh, I, but once I saw the the rain of terror hit Gritty when he was rolled out and Sean Tilger, the boss and and Joe Heller, my lead and his team laughed at the post. Uh, But when, when a post came up that was, he sucks, I hate him. Uh, Sean's directive was, don't share that, (laughs) share the creative post, as long as it was appropriate. Share the creative post. And they followed that fearlessness. They loved it. They reveled in the negativity. They showed that they were being vulnerable at the same time. They didn't show any um, insecurity about it. And people said, wow, that's pretty cool. And then in my process, I taught them they have to have a story, not for public consumption, But to answer the negative critics, because all the negativity is why, 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 why? Why does he look like this? Why did you do this? Um, Why do you think this is going to work with us? And the story, if if it was why, why do you think this is going to work for us? It's not for you. What do you mean it's not for me? It's for the new you. Because guess what? Through attrition, you're going to be gone someday. We need the new you. And the new you that we're creating will never know a time when Gritty wasn't there. Oh, okay, I know my, my grandson loves him. My kids love him. Okay, uh I hate him. I still hate him. But my kids do. So I'm keeping around. I'll keep around because my kids like it. And then when the negativity started rolling over two and a half days later from outside our city, from Pittsburgh, and the Penguins and the their penguin character, and of course Crosby, the most hated hockey player in all of Flyers history, is is Crosby who is playing for Pittsburgh, uh, and the the dismissive tweet that happened, and man, oh man, you just saw the rain of of flack going from the Flyers organization right outside of Philadelphia. He's our ugly, and he's not yours, and you can't criticize him because you know what? We know he's ugly. We know he looks like a mistake, but he's our mistake, so you shut up, (laughs) and then the the outside community who didn't have investment like we do here in our sports. And, but it was great comedy. Then we had the brilliant late night comedians all take advantage of it. Boom. That's it. I knew he was an enormous success when I got called to do an interview on Canada national public radio. And they wanted to know what my comment was about Antifa stealing a picture of Gritty strangling Trump. And, and what did I think of that? What was my political stance? And I laughed at them. I go, I said, wait a minute, I, this is a serious interview? I, <laughs> this got nothing to do, this is noise. You know, you, go ask Antifa, don't ask me because I I had to go look up who Antifa was. Okay, so, and I know they're violent and everything, but it's got nothing to do with us. Uh, we're promoting the NHL and the Flyers. And they were somewhat indig- indignant that I wouldn't take a political stand. I go, that's I got nothing to do with that. <laughs> I just helped the Flyers create a character brand that's going to live forever. And if Antifa wants to hijack it, that's fine, but that's their issue. They wanted the Flyers to send a cease and desist letter. And I'm like, they're not even paying attention to that. They're focused on their fans in Philadelphia. Uh, and and it's, it's too hard to go uh, when it when it got out of our ether and became, you know, a, a worldwide noticed character. They weren't listening to the conversations. They were just going, Hey, that's pretty cool. Look, look, look at it over there. Um, So, you know, some, these are the fun killers, right? I talk about that they they just can't seem to wrap their head around something that's, that's funny. No matter what the context is, it's funny and it makes you smile and laugh, which is really powerful medicine.
1: (laughs) Amazing how social media, you know, you wonder what would happen social media back in the Philly fanatics day as, as, as that was revealed and what would have happened at that point. And, and I know with the Philly Fanatic, he is something, and he does have a backstory. Tell, tell our, our viewers, our listeners, what he is, that backstory, and, and, and who came up with all that.
0: Well, he's a flightless bird from the Galapagos Islands. He was not naturally created. He was a Darwin experiment that went bad. <laughs> so I'm always teaching my clients authentic storytelling. So let me tell you how we came up with that concept. That has turned into uh, millions and millions of dollars of additional branding, awareness, and merchandise. And, and now you go to the Phillies games on Sundays, you'll see the Galapagos gang that, you know, the, the land tortoise, um, the Iggy the iguana, you know, they, uh, the blue-footed booby, they're all immortalized in these wonderful air characters and, and they're part of the entertainment. So it's, it's all because of this simple mistake. The Phillies had not decided to tell a story. They just went, here he is, right? With, there was no plan. This was the beauty and brilliance of, of Bill. He would make the plan as it became successful. If it was a massive, ah, we're just having fun with you. <laughs> so, you know, he had the plausible deni- deniability of how crazy this idea was. <clears throat> so I'm going after my first few appearances because, you know, Bill would say, Well, just go out here. And then he'd call me on the dugout phone and say, run out with the ground crew, see what happens. And that was the direction I'd get from him. And then we would, we he had a great little giggle, sounded like a little kid. He'd go, <laughs> And that was part of Bill's personality. So we, he giggled when I did something that worked. And <clears throat> when something didn't work out, we said, well, we don't have to do that anymore. We got requests to go to, um, you know, these car dealerships. That was the first one they called. And I said, what am I doing there, Mr. Joss? Just? Just go out there and see what, it, what it's like. I'd come back and say, we need security. 3,000 people showed up at the car dealership. But they were all yelling things at me. And one that, that started to frustrate me, I didn't understand it, was what are you? And I would point to the back or to the pennant and say, no, we know you're the fanatic, but what are you? Are you an anteater? Are you an aardvark? And I didn't realize why this frustrated me until I'd been working on, on stagecraft with, w- you know, with my appearances on stage. I, wasn't do- I, I did it all naturally in the fanatic. But when I would talk to other actors and acting coaches, because that makes sense, David, you had no idea. You were showing up with no understanding. The curtains opened and here you walk out in the middle of the stage and you don't know who you are. So I found that out later, but I was frustrated and went to a meeting. We had a lot of debrief meetings as the Fanatic was growing. And in this meeting, I said, I'm I'm so frustrated. Uh, you know, I, I, they want to know who I am. And I, I look like a Darwin experiment gone awry. That's I said that. <laughs> and then one of the other interns said, you're from the Galapagos Islands. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's perfect. And, and so with that two line uh, story, we built that the Fanatic you know he wasn't a natural species in a place where darwin did all of this evolutionary development and theory because there was such a wild array of amazing looking species there the albatross birds the blue footed and blue-footed and red footed boobies and land tortoises and iguanas and sea lions all endemic to this place but they didn't accept the fanatics because they weren't real so they sent the fanatic, our fanatic off in search of acceptance and found the city of brotherly love (laughs) and the Phillies. So that, that is the beautiful story that has been, you know, inspired to write children's books. Tom Burgoyne has written uh, at least 20 children's books as the fanatic learning what it's like to move from veteran stadium to the new stadium. Uh, You know, how, how, how you deal with people not you know, making fun of you because you're different. So all of this, uh, there, and we, the Phillies actually took me with Tom and the fanatic to the Galapagos Islands. So I've lived one of the greatest experiences anybody on the planet can to go there because we were in search of the fanatic's birth. And we were, we were developing Time Traveler Fanatic, a video that was coming out back when videos were still in. Um, and I got to see the Galapagos Islands. And, and it, it, so all of this comes from the spirit of an authentic story And it's powerful when you do that because people will come to your side when you can answer why. So, um, so that it's, it's great. And we didn't do it originally, but when I, because of the work I've done, all of my clients have to follow this process. The first one is commitment and fearlessness. And the second one is authentic storytelling. The third one is unique development and design. And the fourth is great performance. Uh, And that's performance both live in costume but it's also video and uh through animation and through photography Uh, but and it's and part of that formula of great performance is a fabulously trained and valued performer there's the galapagos (laughs) (laughs) and and iggy there the little yellow one iggy the iguana can actually eat people (laughs) you can actually eat and swallow an umpire whole. uh so uh yeah this is so this is great i love yet the fact that you've had this video um Great preparation, Mike. You could have worked for us back in the, in the eighties. Well, that,
1: that's all JR. Again, the creator, the producer, the director of their show doing a great job for us getting some, some pictures, some video there. Um, one more question I have, you know, the, the snout and the tongue that's, you know, something you think about with him, how, how, when you're in the costume, how did you get the tongue out?
0: Well, it's a, uh, it's, it's a story that has a little gross out feature with kids kids will love. Um, But uh, it it is also the bane of my existence as somebody who creates character brands. Everybody wants that special thing. And the Flyers wanted it. They wanted smoke to come out of their helmet. And I always tell my clients, listen, when you build a special effect, you're building something to break down. You're always going to be having to fix it. This situation of a smoke machine inside the helmet, there's going to be a lot of money in R&D. You're going to create it. You're going to love the way it looks. And then you'll abandon it uh, a month later, because you'll see the performer doing a good job is what you need. You don't need special effects. Well, they still invested in it. That happened exactly the what they've never used it again. They, they did it a couple of times and, and there was too much weight in the head and, and all that. And that's all because the simplicity of the fanatic snout, it is a party favor, something iconic that we all know as kids and even young kids still get them today. It's a little tube. So there's a tube that runs in the fanatic's uh, head, which is up on top of our head, that tube runs down. It's surgical tubing and it sits right by the fur. And, you, and you, you'll you see sometimes uh, the performer <laughs> go like this and that tube that's inserting the tube in their mouth so they can blow and this tube comes out. It's simple by design because it's easy to replace that because they break pretty quickly or they're pulled out by kids in the stands. And you just have to, one of, one of the things I had to do constantly is have these next party favors ready to go in and I taped them inside the the mouth because they would last for a few innings and then I'd have to replace them. The gross out factor is that tube <laughs> starts to look like somebody has been smoking for years. Cause you blow in there and you can't, cl- you can't clean it. So we'd have to replace those tubes. If you remove those tubes. You're like, Oh God, <laughs> get the, you know, and it was not the most, um, uh, it wasn't the greatest thing because, you know, for, for my lifetime with the Phillies, I always had a backup performer who did outside appearances and Tom, some of our backup performers have stayed with the Phillies for over 25 years. Uh, so that was one of the things where, well, we got to clean it now because the next person is going to use it. So, um, simple by design, but kind of uh, gross. And, and so I'm giving you a little bit too much information to go home with. I hope no one's eating their breakfast or lunch as they watch this.
1: Uh, a little bit under the hood, under the, the, the head there of the Philly fanatic. Uh, great stuff. Again, you're doing some great things, uh, to our viewers, our listeners, uh, where they can find the book number one, um, and how they can follow you and maybe how they can get you as a keynote speaker. Because, uh, again, as you've seen here, I mean, great story to tell, um, and just, a uh, great presence. As I saw, like I said, the, the Ted talk that you had done in, in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, a while back. So, uh, how can we get more of, uh, Dave Raymond?
0: I appreciate that. So there, so both of my, my websites are connected, but Dave Raymond is, is about my keynote. Um, what we do—it's—it's uh, it's more than just a keynote. We—we we do a lot of work before and after to engage everybody. And on that website, you can click uh, to find about mascots, and it takes you to uh, my character branding site. Uh, the book—Jeff Bezos is not getting one nickel of my revenue, so the only place you can get the book is on this website. Uh, there, you'll—you'll you'll find it, and you can click on it and buy it there. You also can ask me to autograph it, and you get one of these uh, pins that I'm wearing, which is—which shows that you're a believer in the power of fun. Uh, you can catch me on uh, a, one of the very f- uh, most famous late night shows. Uh, I'm going to be announcing on my social media. Uh, I've already been to LA and filmed that. That's going to be coming up soon. And we'll make that announcement. And you can follow me on on Instagram, uh, on Twitter, on Facebook. It's easy to find me through our, our websites. And um, gosh, I'd love to go talk to, I talked to groups uh, that 12 leaders, like from Uber Sooner to uh, 2,500 people uh, in front of Sherm audiences, uh, both in Philadelphia and other regions, and um, I, I just would love to get the chance to be able to entertain uh, your audiences and then teach them some simplicity about how to overcome.
1: Well, from in the front row to late night in in LA, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on here again. I knew this was going to be fun. It was going to be educational. It's uh, really more than I thought it was going to be as well. Some great life lessons that you've imparted with us here today. So. Dave, I can't thank you enough for, for spending some time with us here today. And, and again, you're the original Philly fanatic, but so much more uh, than that in your life. And I uh, wish you the best in, in your career as you, you move on.
0: Uh, this is the one of the best expressions of gratitude. Uh, so I, I want to thank you, Mike, and appreciate it. And, and JR, who no one got a chance to meet, is doing great things. So uh, kudos to JR and your team. And, and I'm looking forward to continuing to watch other episodes.
1: All right. Again, the hero of happiness, the emperor of fun, the original Philly fanatic. It is Dave Raymond here on this episode. Thanks so much, Dave. Bye now. And once again, my thanks to Dave Raymond. Great job. The emperor of fun, the hero of happiness, the original Philly fanatic, and so much more. Be sure to follow him great follow and uh, certainly a very interesting story to tell here today on in the front row my thanks to him my thanks to J.R. equipment our creator producer director everybody involved with the show on a weekly basis we hope you're enjoying it we'll have more great guests to come another week next week and another guest in the front row with mike McCarroll. have a great day everybody